All right, well, good morning. If you could take your seats, you're definitely gonna want a handout. I don't have any slides today. And I'm gonna talk kind of fast. I'm gonna leave a lot. If you're interested in the details and the verses, I'm gonna, those are all in your handout to take home. If you want a copy of my teacher's handout that has even more, just ask me. I do not think we'll have time for questions and comments. We're a three-parter today. I'm gonna try to lay out some of the ethical and biblical categories for our subject, which is the end-of-life care or end-of-life decisions that does include euthanasia. Um, and then we're gonna get a doctor's perspective, Christian doctor's perspective on these issues, and a, um, a bit of a personal update from the Andersons. And so this is a big subject. We're, we're in a series of ethics right now. This is definitely one of the chapters you'll see in an ethics book, where it'll usually be focused on euthanasia, but I wanna broaden that a bit today. First thing I wanna do is, remember we started this series last March on a, a series of abortion. And so there's a lot of similarities there. So there are things that I focused on there. I'm not gonna go into too much detail now because hopefully you're, you're already equipped with some of that. But it's interesting, one thing I said back then is a lot of times you're, as you're having the abortion discussion, you compare it to people who are maybe in a coma at the end of their life as you're comparing this baby in the womb and who's helpless, obviously, uh, not conscious in the way we think of it. And a lot of times you make that comparison. So we're actually gonna go back and look at that. Remember in abortion we talked about, our, our basic argument was, number one, it's a scientific premise that the baby in the womb is biologically a human being that is being killed. Uh, number two, there's a philosophical understanding that human beings are people that have rights. And so therefore, abortion is wrong because we don't intentionally kill human beings. And so some of, the, uh, some of the things that translate there are, if a person, sometimes it's argued that personhood, yes, there's a biological being in the womb, but personhood, the human rights, the, the, the need to care for that baby is sometimes later than conception. So the question was, well, when? When does somebody gain personhood, gain human rights? So the same thing as someone at the end of their life. When could, is it possible that they would be biologically alive but lose human rights? And when does that happen? How do you define that? We talked about the soul. From a Christian perspective or any religious perspective, we believe we have a soul. So if, if you don't have a soul at conception or don't have a soul in the womb, are you, when are you given that soul, right? So same thing. Is it possible someone's in a vegetative state and that soul is no longer there? They're not really them. We talked about balancing rights. We, uh, you know, a woman who, uh, who a mother who is um, carrying a baby and her life is at risk. Is that now okay to kill the child to save the mother? What if that is not death, but extreme emotional or economic trauma uh, type of things? Where do you get into the idea of balancing rights? All those issues come to the fore again at, at some, the end of life. I have, my, uh, I have an aunt and uncle right now that are, are struggling, uh, a step cousin, I guess. I don't know her that well. Um, she's dying and it's, it's taking all sorts, the, the, the financial costs are unreal. The emotional stress in our home is unreal. And if she just said, you know what, I wanna relieve your stress, just let me go, I only have a couple months anyway, would that be an ethical decision? Would it be ethical to, to encourage that? And of course, I, I could not um, 
you know, prepare for this without thinking about Clayton daily in this. Uh, and the last thing I'll say on that comparison is I've talked a lot about relying on general wisdom. The Bible doesn't have all the answers. It doesn't give us black and white. And so at some point we rely on general wisdom. We rely on doctors and medical knowledge. We rely on ethicists, even non-Christian ethicists. A lot of our thinking has been framed by a Western mindset that isn't necessarily Christian. We rely on technology and there's no escape from this. We're not gonna be on some simplistic Amish farm away from society making such decisions. So two things I wanna focus on on the board there. Number one, the, the actual main issue. What are the ethics when you're deciding to prolong or end life itself? And then I do wanna get into a bit of the balancing of, of all those costs, all those sufferings, all those hurts. Is there a way to balance those when you don't have any good options? How do you make those options? As always, our goals for these kind of topics are to be biblically faithful, pastorally sensitive, and culturally conversant. We want to help shame a Christian worldview, not just a chapter and verse quoting, but a mindset that's consistent and coherent that, so we can make decisions when we come to tough ones. We want to be pastorally sensitive. You don't want to come to some biblical position and say, see, it's obvious it's right here. P these are decisions that are made in very tough circumstances. I think even, even the person who has an ethics that you would find atrocious, there, there is goodness in their, in their reasoning. You've got to give them that. If, if they really are trying to relieve suffering, if, even if you think it's wrong what, what they do, there is, there is a, an image bearing of God that they possess even though they don't know it. And so you want to be pastorally sensitive and of course culturally conversant. This is often the way you can get to the gospel. Right? Very few of us are just evangelists who can come right up to you and get to the gospel. These are things that are on people's minds, they're in their lives. Ask about their lives and get to the gospel through these subjects. I do wanna make sure we focus on personal morality. I know a lot of this would go into public policy debates and what the law should be, and those are all fair. I just wanna concentrate on individual decisions right now. And then the resources I've used are all in the pastor's library if you wanna use them. So let me start in prayer. Our Father, this is a heavy topic, and as I have found, uh, it goes much deeper. This should be a series. Uh, we pray for your spirit to be with us, to keep people alert, attentive. Give us a heart for these things, even if we don't see them in our lives right now. We have many around us who are going through those, and we will certainly be involved in these types of thoughts and decisions one day. So we pray for confidence in your word that you've given us all that we need. We pray for wisdom uh, to apply your word, to develop a Christian worldview, and to know how to live rightly. We pray for pastoral hearts as we minister to others. And um, we pray that we would be willing to open ourselves up for others to minister to us. Make us light and salt in a dying world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of rattle off. I'm gonna raise more questions than answers. So euthanasia, the word just means good death. So the question is, is that possible? Is it ever possible to kill someone and that to be a good act? Another way to ask that is, is it possible to love your neighbor by killing them? Some of, some of the details you get into, does suffering or quality of life matter in this discussion? Are those fair categories to bring up? I remember during COVID, there was a lot of discussion on, 
you know, balancing risks. Okay, I have a risk of getting this disease, but to avoid that risk or, or lessen the risk, I have to shut myself in for two years. Well, then I'm not living. Is that what God intended for us to be shut up? That's tough, right? You can see both ways. I should preserve life. I'm an image of God. I, I need to stay alive for my children and grandchildren. And yet, what if you do just spend the last two years of life not seeing anybody? Was that worth it? Those are tough. And, and those, that kind of um, balance, it might not be the right word, competing values enters here. If a long life really is the ultimate goal, if we're to live as long as we can as image bearers of God, shouldn't we also take a health a lot more uh, importantly? Shouldn't Tim be up here preaching against eating cheeseburgers and, and not exercising? Like, right, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. So is it wrong? Like, why do we have donuts back there right now? Is, is that type of thing? So the real question is, is, how ultimate is preserving life? That's the question, right? Is there a moral difference with ending someone else's life versus ending your own? Is that a moral difference? Is there a moral difference between actively killing, like inserting poison into somebody so that they die, or passively allowing them to death? I have medicine in my hand that would prolong this life. Is that the same thing? I have the ability to prolong life to save this person. Is that a moral a difference, the category? What if withholding that care causes them more pain and suffering? So therefore they will die, is less chance that they will die, but now they're gonna be excruciating pain. Is it the more Christian thing to do to alleviate their pain? Where would assisted suicide fall into this whole question? Exactly what is assisted suicide? Like, are you administering something or helping them? Holding the instruments for them to grab? I, d I don't know. Is the assistant responsible for anything? Or is that it's the patient's decision? Is it ever okay to abort a baby that will almost certainly die soon after death? And we tend to think of end of life as old people, right? And, or terminally ill. It's not necessarily that. We could be talking about all sorts of situations. Is, is it right from a Christian perspective to say that there's something that's called dying with dignity, a very common phrase? Is it dignified to treat someone in a certain way, even though it, it's a less chance of prolonging their life? All right, questions on the, the second subject there, the prioritizing the cost of care. We have limited resources, right? So how do you make decisions and who makes them? This is pretty analogous to me to a triage, right? You've in an emergency room, you come in somebody, the first person you meet is they're trying to try to figure out how essential your care is. And if it's less, you know, it's not first come, first serve. You, you know, if you've broken your arm, that's, that's horrible, but you might sit over here for four hours because someone is coming in who's not breathing or something, right? Or you've got the scenarios, you run into a burning building, you, you can only save so many, who do you save? Or, you know, multiple people in a lake. At some point, you're making a decision. You can only save some. Well, if you just broaden that out, that essentially the amount of medical care that we have, professionals, equipment, there, there's a limitation, right? There's a limitation to the money. And that doesn't matter if, it's, if we're talking about public policy, socialized medicine, or individual care. At some point, there's a limit. Should economic hardship or emotional trauma be considered for either the patient or her family? Is, is, you're talking life, right? It's just about life. It's just about living. Why are we talking about money? We're talking about life. Well, at some point, right, th there is so much trauma. What, another month of life? Is that worth bankrupting your home for one more month of life? And, and if so, who makes that decision? 
So could suicide then be seen as martyrdom? To save your family from economic burden or tough choices? Okay, I don't want my loved ones to, to carry this burden, so I'm gonna opt out, right? Is that a moral act? It could almost be a martyr in, in some senses. Is it moral to harvest organs or stem cells for the sake of younger people that could live longer? That, that's, there's logic in, in that argument, right? All right, here's some of the, the real challenging distinctions as we get into it. How do you define death? That might seem simple. The, when, if the Bible talks about it, it talks about someone no longer breathing. Well, you know, probably way back when, if you couldn't breathe, there was no way to resuscitate. But now we have, we have brain death. We have upper cell and lower stems, cell, upper stems and lower stems. We have consciousness, and the doctors in the room can go into that. But that, sometimes you're arguing over if the person is dead, is the person there? That's a challenge. And that means the definition of death might change over time with technological advances. Is the provision of necessities like food, hydration, and air more obligatory than medical care? So is, is food considered medical care? Like if you, if you get to the point like, okay, it's okay, it's, it's moral to withhold medical care, like specialized medicine, does that include food? Someone who can't feed themselves, is that the same as withholding food? What if we don't know the will of the patient in that scenario? It's one thing to know what the patient would wanna do. What if we don't know? Or would it be okay to go against the will of the patient? What if the patient doesn't want to be kept alive, but we have a duty of care? What are the limits of the sacred doctor-patient relationship? I think we would all agree there is a sacredness to that relationship. I get a little annoyed in the abortion argument that, well, it's all between the mother and the doctor. Well, they wouldn't say mother. The woman and the doctor, I'm like, well, wait a minute. We have a doctor to give us the biological details, right? Chances of living, what would happen. But you're talking about emotional issues. The stress. Medical doctor isn't trained in that in some special way. I hope not. Not more than we would be as, you know, pastorally concerned. I don't want a medical doctor helping someone decide between some economic trauma they're going through. So how far does that go? How much do we trust that? What is a reasonable chance of recovery? You kind of get into statistics. When is death considered imminent? These are things you're going to get to. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this uh, act if they're about to die. Well, what does that mean? And how certain are we that they're about to die? I, I could not be a doctor. I think that the type of de uh, decisions you have to make would, be, would really weigh on my soul. So thank you for those who you have taken that on. Here are some uh, historically developed um, categories. Not all of these by Christians, but these are kind of some of the big categories that people um, run to when they're trying to decide this stuff. Sustaining life versus prolonging life. Sustaining life versus prolonging life. Sorry, sustaining life versus prolonging dying. Sustaining life versus prolonging dying. I mean, isn't that the same thing? Right, if I'm gonna sustain your life, I'm avoiding your death. But it's kind of a perspective. It goes back to that imminent thing. Well, how imminent is death? If something is imminent, or likely, then we might say, we might call it prolonging their dying. Look, they're dying. It's time to face up to it. But if it's a sustaining a life that has, you know, 20, 30 years in front of them, um, we, we would more think of it in that perspective. 
killing versus letting die. So it goes that, to that category. What is, what is really the difference between killing, actively participating in something that will end that life versus withholding care that would sustain that life? And there's basically three, three differences here, three positions you could take. So kill versus let die. So one, pers one perspective is, yes, there's a difference. Is there, is, there, is there a difference is the question. Yes, there's a difference. So it might be ethically okay to let die, but not to kill. That would be a common position. It's okay to let someone die because I'm not participating, but it's, it's never right to kill. Another perspective would say, no, there is no difference. And therefore, you shouldn't do either one of them. So you're not allowed to kill or let die. You have a duty of care, an ultimate duty of care. If you have the ability to sustain this life, then you must. And then there'd be another position is, no, there's, there's no difference, and therefore both of them are okay. If you think, if you can make the argument that it's okay in this situation to let someone die, it's just as right to kill them because it's, it's really the same thing. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing. Those are tough things to think through. What if someone refuses food and drink? Can we force them to take it? What if someone in their will says, I want to be sustained? Is it okay to say, no, resources are limited, and you know, in the balance of all the lives I'm trying to save, you, you didn't make the cut? Is that okay? These, these are real decisions that someone's making. You know, one of the stats I saw was in the early 1900s, two-thirds two -thirds of people lived uh, less than 50 years old, and they died at home. And now, over two-thirds will die in a hospital or nursing home, and they're, of course, much older than, than 50. So we, and we, we had an African neighbor once who said, Americans, the West does not understand death. In Africa, everyone sees a dead body. Death is just part of life in an ironic way. Here, we somewhat hide in behind the white walls, right? I don't want to deal with it. Let's put them over there, put granny over there. And, and I know I, I feel that way a little bit. I, I don't like being in a hospital. I, um, someone's got to do it, right? And maybe I've conditioned myself to, to not accept reality. And so cultures are different. Over history, things are different. And so we want to kind of break out of that and have, a, again, a Christian worldview that transcends cultures a bit. That's, we'll never be totally successful in that. There's something called double effect. Probably my last drawing. Oh, there it is. Double effect, and this goes to intent. And so say you take an act that will hurt, kill, um, oh, sorry, to care for, so, and then it has this other effect, we'll put that in red. It has some bad effect. So in abortion, we talked about if the doctor is caring, is trying to preserve the life of the mother, say has an ectopic pregnancy, we know the, the likely, if not 100% outcome of an ectopic pregnancy is, is the baby dies, the fetus dies. And this has been coming up a lot in the legal discussions since the Dodds decision. So is, is caring for an ectopic pregnancy abortion? And the pro-life people would say no. You're, it all comes to this intent. I'm, I'm caring for the woman who has this pregnancy and unfortunately in that care the baby dies. 
Well, it would be quite different to say, I'm going to kill the baby for the good effect that the woman is, has less stress. And I don't mean to minimize that stress. I mean real, I would want the woman to get to some mental state, some emotional, economic state. And maybe it is the scars of a rape or whatever, but it's quite different to say, I'm going to specifically kill the baby to get some other good outcome. So that would be kind of the abortion side. So if we're talking euthanasia or end of life, it would be something like, um, I'm going to, I'm going to get, provide medicine that provides um, suffering, relief from suffering. But that's going to dull their senses, and maybe their body will be unwilling to fight. That might increase the chance of death because I'm taking care of their pain. Or maybe we don't have a living will. We're trying to figure out what this patient would want. But to, but to care for them at this point, they're less able to tell us what they want. Right? Again, and then pure euthanasia would really be, I'm going to kill this person to relieve their suffering. So those are categorical differences. And I'm, I, I drew green and red because of my positions on abortion. I'll let you draw your, your, your position. If this would all be green, would that be okay to kill someone to relieve suffering? But that's, that's what double effect is. What is the intent? It's like, man, I went to the doctor and they cut my foot off. Was that a good or an evil act? Well, it depends, right? <laughs> what would happen if they didn't? Are they trying to hurt you? Is, or are they trying to save your life, right? The intent is everything. Okay, then we have um, different names for this. Ordinary versus extraordinary means. Pope Pius X gave us that. Or the 12th, I don't remember. Ordinary versus extraordinary means. Or natural versus unnatural care. And it's kind of going back to that necessities versus medical care. Maybe we have a distinction on what kind of care we're giving. Food and water would be one thing. The ability to breathe would be one thing. Maybe normal type of medicine, everyday type of medicine. Again, the, the doctors would have to help me on some specifics here. Versus something that's really extraordinary. Maybe it's really costly. It's really rare. We're going to go all out. We're going to bring in six you know, doctors and nurses in this room to provide life here. You know, but that's obviously taking away doctors and nurses from someone else. At some point, there's kind of a balance of care there. So could we categorize certain things as ordinary and certain things as extraordinary? One of the authors I read said, it's kind of like if you're at war with an enemy and you have the ability to bomb a weapons factory or bomb a farm. You could argue that bombing the farm is legitimate because I'm, I'm now interrupting the enemy's ability to survive. And yet that would be categorically different. I'm, I'm going all out on this population. I'm hurting everybody, right, by, by destroying a farm. Versus a weapons factory is very focused on what I'm, what I'm doing. Maybe, maybe that helps. If we're willing to withhold nutrition for the, and then this goes back to the abortion. If we're willing to withhold nutrition from the elderly, what about the young? That, that would be some of the abortion argument, right? I have no reason as a woman to have this parasite in my womb. I have no responsibility to care for this. I didn't ask for this. Um, and so I'm not going to do anything that helps this child. Even if you would grant that it's a human being, even if you grant that it's a person, I have no responsibility here. And unfortunately, my belly does look like I'm pregnant. I'm sorry. All right. I feel I need to liven up a little bit. 
I think Mark will talk about this a little bit. There are things out there, living wills versus durable powers of attorney versus court-directed substitute judgment. So that, you know, it's, it's me making decision, me giving that authority to someone else, or I never did that, and a court from the outside says, we're just gonna make a decision on behalf of this person who can't speak for themselves. There's another category called biological versus biographical life, and this kind of gets into that quality of life. Is there something different between, yes, technically this person is alive, but they're not really living. They're not really having memories. Um, they don't have an experience going on right now. So, the, so there's a difference. And that, so we're allowed to um, take away the life of someone who is biologically alive, but not biographically alive. Or I'm sure there's other category, uh, names for those things out there. And so that goes back to the whole idea from abortion, the, the intrinsic value of human life. Um, at one level, at least, we would say, no, there's no difference. Like there's value in a biological life. Now it's, it's getting to the balancing of resources that you start looking at biographical life, I assume. All right. And I've not left myself much time to go through the verses. So um, some biblical and Christian worldview implications. Clearly, you shall not murder, right? Um, we're made in God's image, and so we have a different, we are distinct from other animals on the planet, right? So I won't, I won't beat that up. The Western ideals of autonomy, we keep talking about what is their intent, this living will. Well, is that self-determination is a huge current you know, value, but it's not absolute for the Christian. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is not your own. We belong to God, God created us. We, we don't have the right to take our life. There's no explicit you know, verse in the Bible that says you will, shall not commit suicide, but it, number one, it's easily deducible from the fact that our bodies are not our own. Um, plus every example you have of suicide in the Bible, show it, it follows spiritual collapse. Personal responsibility on their hand is a Christian value. So we can't just live in that, you know, I'm just gonna live and whatever, whatever happens to me, someone else is gonna have to deal with. No, we have personal responsibility to think through things. Does that responsibility go so far as, hey, it's, it would be the Christian thing to have a living will? It's a question I'll leave. I think this is important. We need a biblical view of death. Death is unnatural, it's inevitable, and at least for us, it's not final. Death is unnatural, inevitable, and not final. You know, we all, we all feel it. We feel less bad for an 85-year-old who dies than a 20-year-old. There's no doubt. And yet at a true level, I, I, I'm about to preach at my third young cousin's funeral, and something I always say is, you know, it's, it's tragic for any death. No death should happen. God didn't create us to die. That's a result of the fall. And so it, it, we ought to see death as unnatural. And yet we also, on this side of the fall, it is inevitable. There's only so much prolonging of death that you can do. And thanks be to God, for us it's not final. And I think some of those implications might come into our specific decisions. Uh, we have no reason to fear death as Christians. We have no reason to fear death. And so if nothing else, I would want you to face these decisions, at least for yourself, and maybe on behalf of someone else, um, at, at least you're counseling at someone's dying bedside to not fear death. Give them the hope of eternal life. And if they're not a believer, preach the gospel to them. Far more important, wouldn't you say? than the decisions on sustaining this life. 
We are sometimes called to risk death and not always to avoid it. So from a biblical perspective, the preserving of us, even though we are image bearers of God with intrinsic value, it, it is not right to say that therefore that's absolute and that trumps every other decision. Tons of verses I could go through. We are, we are called to risk death. Um, one example, John 10, I'm the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life. Did Jesus commit suicide? Maybe there's a categorical distinction there. But he knew he was going. Paul knew that he was going to go and be arrested. He did that willingly for some greater cause. Greater love has known than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. We need a biblical view of suffering. We are sometimes called to endure suffering and not avoid it. So, on the other hand, our absolute isn't to avoid pain and suffering. It can't be. This doesn't take away all the tough decisions of when you would do it. But at some point, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about no temptation has overtaken you, but it's common to man. God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Loving our neighbor does include relieving their sin. Proverbs 31, 6 is a really interesting verse. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those bitter, in bitter distress. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. So palliative care, so you're, you're not sustaining life per se itself, biological life, but you're treating someone's pain and suffering as they're hurting and possibly dying. That is a biblical value. This is from John Frame. It's, so he would say we do have a balance. It, this, this gives us a challenge. It would be easier if the absolute is preserve life. No matter how much it costs me, no matter how much it hurts them, I'm just preserving life. It makes the decision easier. So now we actually, we're actually called to wrestle if this perspective is correct. Loving our neighbor extends all the way to their death. We can't just give up on our neighbor at any point. We should never abandon them. Suffering does not render life meaningless or valueless. That's somewhat um, a worldly view. You, yes, we all want to relieve pain and suffering, but for some people, look, at, look, look what kind of life they're going to have to live and the pain they're going to go through, and they start to think less of that life. It's less intrinsically valuable. We don't want to go there. Romans 8, I consider sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Again, we need that eternal perspective. Love of neighbor includes actively doing good, not just avoiding evil. So we can't just sit back and say, well, as long as I don't participate, no, we're called to go into this difficult, sticky situation and do good. Sorry, you're not going to be able to avoid this. God is calling us to the really hard things here. Let us do good not just withhold from doing harm. Uh, the class on financial management, we talked about proximal responsibility. We, we care for those who are in our immediate sphere, right? The, the um, Good Samaritan. Those who are in our lives, our family connections, our church, there's, there's a hierarchy there of, of responsibilities that we have. So you, you can go through those verses or go back to that class. And then there is the Mosaic law, for whatever it's worth, on the equity of the moral uh, law would be, it, it, it's the best I would have to go see, that God does see differences in, you know, trying to kill someone versus negligence, that you were, you were careless, you didn't, you know, you didn't put a fence on your roof and someone fell, you're responsible for that, but it's not the same as murder. So that 
if that's all, if that's all applicable, then there is a difference between actively killing and, and passively letting somebody or, or being negligent. So on the one hand, we are responsible for negligence. On the other hand, it's not the same culpability. So I want to stop there to give Paul a few mind coming up. And I, I don't know what Paul's going to say. <laughs> um, I've asked him, number one, if there's any like specific, if you don't know Paul, he's a doctor, and Claire. Um, any perspective from his time as a doctor, think either hypothetical or real, um, that may, maybe some flesh on the bones that I've, that I've laid out. Good morning. Um, so as Keith said, uh, I practice medicine. I'm uh, a pulmonologist, and I also work in the medical intensive care unit. Um, and so, uh, yeah, some of the things that I, I prepared to say, um, I'll start by just sharing how I kind of think about my the times when I'm on call in the medical ICU. And, um, and I find... Uh, the larger catechism question 135 to be helpful. Um, as Keith was saying, he mentioned that the sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. Um, but implicit within that is that we have a duty to preserve life. Um, and then as, the, as the, the, the answer to the question, what is the sixth commandment is quite long, but at the end of it, they use the term, we have a duty to um, succor the distressed. So, like he was saying, palliative care, provide comfort to those that are suffering. And uh, as he was alluding to, it's hard to balance those things because um, sometimes our means of providing comfort uh, kind of impede upon our ability to sustain, preserve life to the fullest as far as the, the duration of life. Um, and so then we have to find a balance between, uh, we usually use the terms quantity of life and quality of life. Um, and, uh, and that's where we uh, you know, rely on families. Um, a lot of the times the, the patient cannot communicate to us what their goals are um, in those circumstan circumstances. Uh, so um, a few other things that I, I try to remind myself of um, are, uh, just kind of getting into a, a good frame of mind um, as to what the Bible teaches about suffering um, as I kind of go into uh, a week of call. Um, so I appreciate with what Keith was saying about how, you know, God didn't make the world uh, to have death and suffering in it. Um, but, you know, things uh, as they are, um, you know, it's, it's important to learn about suffering while we're not suffering ourselves, that way we can be better prepared to handle it in those times. Um, and so the, the first thing I usually try to do, um, because, you know, as, as Christians, we, we tend to read the Bible, and, and we, I, I find, at least myself, I remember more the examples of how God uses suffering um, as a judgment for people's sins, uh, like, like David um, with Bathsheba, but um, I have to remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, is when I see somebody suffering, you know, maybe their medical condition is related to their lifestyle choices, maybe it's not, but um, I need to remember that I deserve to have a tower fall on me, <clears throat> um, and that I need to repent uh, of my own sins. 
Um, and that also, uh, you know, if we experience suffering in our own lives, um, I like what C.S. Lewis says in that uh, suffering is God's megaphone. So he uh, whispers to us in our good times, he uh, speaks to us in our conscience, and he shouts to us in our sufferings. Um, so we should always, if we're suffering um, or we see others suffering, examine ourselves to see if God's trying to speak to us in some particular way. Um, when I talk to families, uh, I try to remember that I do work in the house of mourning and um, that I need to, uh, so I'll reflect on John chapter 11, um, which as you all remember is when uh, Lazarus had died and Jesus is going to visit Mary and Martha um, and ultimately raise Lazarus from the dead. But what I like about that chapter is both Martha and Mary say the same exact thing to Jesus. They say, uh, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. But he re responds to them in completely different ways. Uh, and this was, Tim Keller explains this in his book, uh, Encounter, I think it's called Encounters with Jesus. But he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says to, to Mary, he just weeps with her. So um, I need to remember, like, I, you know, usually it's, it's a mixture of those two based on the situation and what, um, you know, the, the person that I'm talking to and what's wrong with the patient. But I remember to weep with those who weep, but also provide truth because as the as a physician in charge of the patient's care, um, I need to try to accurately uh, communicate um, what's going on with the patient and try to provide some insight as to how they will, they will do. A lot of times people will ask me, um, or my wife who's an oncologist, they'll say, what's the prognosis? And I try not to use that, that term because I do not have foreknowledge. Um, at best, maybe I have some foresight um, but ultimately, only only God has foreknowledge. So I, I try to use best available medical evidence to provide information to families about what I expect, how I expect someone to do. Um, but ultimately, uh, I'm just you know giving an, an opinion. Um, it's an informed opinion, um, but it's not perfect. Um, and so, you know, when you if if you all talk to to doctors, remember that you know that we're people and that we're not infallible. Um, uh, so it, it's it's not wrong to to question if you feel like something's off. Um, uh, but uh, you know we're we're doing our best um, in those circumstances. Um, but but I've I've been wrong many times about how long it's going to take someone to pass if we transition the palliative care. Um, uh, you know, or I, I thought someone was going to do better and, and they didn't do as well as I thought. So, uh, I w you know, if there's, um, I, I should probably wrap up here, but a few other things that I just want to, to mention to encourage you all um, to think about um, are to uh, um, just, uh, we all need to, to think about these things more often. I know we don't like to think about them um, but we should remember uh, Moses' words in Psalm 90, where we pray, 
that God should teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom. Because um, I think if, if we think about things, uh, ultimately, Jesus is coming quickly. Um, the longest most of us will have to wait for him to come is about 80 years. And I've seen a lot of people who don't have to wait that long. Um, and they had nothing wrong with them. And they just had a horrible accident. And, uh, and, and so Jesus can come quickly. So don't procrastinate. Um, we can't depend uh, upon tomorrow. So um, I think I should uh, turn things over. To I don't have, Mark, do you mind coming up? Is that okay? Well, Mark and Terry. Yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah. I did just want to share a personal dilemma. As you know, my son-in-law, Clayton, was in a motorcycle accident, and he had severe brain damage. And my personal dilemma was, how do I pray? Do I pray God take him now? Because I knew if he lived, it was going to take my daughter's life down. And because I'm so self-infatuated, that it would be all-consuming for me, too. And it was hard. You know, you never think about those things, but I decided to pray for healing. And, you know, we still don't know how Clayton's going to wind up. You know, he may be uh, a burden to us all for years to come. But I just wanted to briefly say, just to kind of compliment what Keith was saying, is um, we did have to do the research. What are the laws in Nevada? And the laws are different in every state. They do, these things are called advanced directives, which you, as a conscious person, must sign. You can't get someone who has a brain injury to do it. So those are um, a living will. If you don't have one, you should get one. Or, uh, if, or you should do a power of attorney, or a do not resuscitate if that's your wish. And these are all difficult decisions, man. I'm telling you what, it is so murky. This is a great class, Keith, because there's a lot of gray here. Uh, the thing about the state of Nevada is if you don't have a power of attorney or a living will, in Nevada they have what's called surrogate consent. consent. So if you're a wife or a husband, you can make the decision for the person who's suffering, or an adult child for a parent who's suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you should think about this. You should have a living will or power of attorney to someone. Did you want to say Even if you're only 18, get her done. <laughs> it's really, really important. Um, so I just wanted to speak to, I loved what um, Dr. Paul said about um, the murkiness of it all and not knowing, and this is especially true, I'm glad to hear it's not just for brain injury. One of the early things we learned, uh, so this would deal with stroke victims and uh, traumatic brain in injury, abbreviated as TBI, is that um, from day one, all the neurologists caring for Clayton would say, we don't know. And you think there would be some knowledge, but it's an open slate because everyone's individual. Um, and also, so early on, so age has a factor in it. Um, uh, other, con other conditions, uh, that health conditions have a factor in recovery. And I wanna commend you to, um, if you're following the Caring Bridge, um, 
the, uh, Toby often speaks of the Rancho Los Amigos Coma Scale. And it's a very definitive, uh, good scale of, of what's happening when. And so you can just Google it and it explains it. So there's eight stages. Uh, currently, Clayton has moved into stage four. It's called the conscious and agitative stage. If you do visit, um, visiting is good for him, especially if you can bring up a, uh, um, a memory share or any of that, um, because it's helping rebuild um, the axion. Well, they, they can't be rebuilt. Um, when you have a, a TBI and your brain shakes, everything breaks. And so it's, the brain rewires itself. Uh, so when you visit, he may be very coherent and speaking, or he may be um, restless and agitated or sleeping. I know Ed shared when he visited last night, he, he, Clayton was asleep after a long day. Um, but just to sit and pray with him is good. And um, the other thing I wanted to share is, um, if, is that Clayton is early on, um, the family had all those discussions, especially when he was still in a coma, like, what do we do? What's, especially when no one knows. And so one of the things about um, strokes and brain injuries is that there are mark, there's a three-month marker, there's a six-month marker, and then there's a year. So at three months, doctors can sort of give a educated um, advice. Um, I can't remember what Dr. Paul called it, like of, his, of the, the um, patient's future. At, it, it becomes clear and like if maybe this is favorable. At six months, they'll know more based on where they are. And at a year, it is a little more definitive. And so um, those are things to be able to ask if you're in, ever in such a situation. And uh, just as specific about Clayton is he's, he's moved into the conscious and agitate, agitated stage a little ahead of schedule. So that's very, um, that's very good. But at any time, you know, God can just, that's it, freeze you. Um, and then those decisions are, um, and we did get permission this morning uh, to share from Toby. And she shared a story about how um, when they came, so you can't um, be on a ventilator for a prolonged amount of time. Eventually, there's a decision to be made about a tracheotomy and then a feeding tube. And so she said, Mom, I, I didn't realize it at the time what they were asking me. She, when the doctors came to her and said, um, sorry for my voice, um, uh, here's the next step. Do you want us to proceed? And she said, well, of course. Um, and I think at the time he had moved from coma to vegetative stage. There's a newer, fancier, um, uh, more politically correct word for it, but most of us know it as that. It's um, where uh, eyes may be open, but there's not consciousness yet. And she said, in hindsight, I realized they were asking me if we wanted to put him on life support or just let him naturally go. And so um, it was never expressed to, to her like that. So sometimes it's good to be surrounded with family and good advice. So anything else? And thank
thank you so much for all your prayers. And those of you visiting, it's just been wonderful. And all the housekeeping and food and blah, blah, blah. You guys have been amazing. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Our Father, may today be a reminder of the brevity of our life. Our life is a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. Help us to believe that and to live with that knowledge. May we be ready for death. May we be ready for the second death. Thank you for the cross, the grace that allows us to overcome this just punishment for our sin. Help us to love others. Help us to not be self-absorbed with our lives and our careers and building our wealth and Help us to, to have eyes that see the needs that are around us and to carve out time and money to give to those in need. We particularly pray for Clayton uh, as he does fight for his life. We pray for healing. We pray for him to, to go up that ladder of consciousness and, and come out and, and to live a long and a full life. We pray for Toby, all the emotional uh, stress of it all, the financial stress and, and the risk of losing her job to care for her husband. And the Andersons and all those uh, in the extended family around who are trying to give good advice and do research uh, to pray for them. And be with us as a church, move our hearts to care for them. We pray for the, their own uh, home local church as well, that they would continue to be able to, to care for them among many other tragedies they've had. So it is with sober hearts that we come to worship this morning, and yet sober and yet joyful hearts, because we have a Savior who has overcome death. Thank you that you're in control. You have willed the suffering in this family's life, in all of our lives, and so help us to seek your will on what, why you've done that, or at least to, to take comfort that you know what you're doing. You are with us uh, even more so, in a sense, in the midst of our suffering and our doubts. And so we thank you for a great Savior who can answer all these questions. In Jesus' name, amen.